When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Newt's World... America was once the world's dream factory. We turned imagination into reality, from curing polio to landing on the moon to creating the internet. And we were confident that more wonders lay just over the horizon. Clean and infinite energy, a cure for cancer, humanoid robots, radical life extension, and space colonies. Also, of course, flying cars. Science fiction would become fact. But as we moved into the late 20th century, we grew cautious, even cynical, about what the future held and our ability to shape it. America became a downwing society. In his new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised, James Pathakoukas presents groundbreaking ideas, sharp analysis, and provides a detailed roadmap to a fantastic future filled with incredible progress and prosperity that is both optimistic and realistic. The conservative futurist invites us to invent the future we want to live in and fight for a better tomorrow. Here to talk about his new book, I am really pleased to welcome my guest, James Pethokoukas. He is a policy analyst and the DeWitt Wallace Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he also writes and edits the AEI Ideas blog, and writes the Faster Please newsletter. He also is a contributor on CNBC. James, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Newt, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. This is great. I think a generation ago, I was a futurist. I used to work with Alvin Toffler and once wrote a book called window of opportunity talking about what we could accomplish. So I was very attracted when I saw your book and realized that you'd gone down the same optimistic path of a better future. But I want to start, though, with the premise of what you mean by America either being a downwing or an upwing society. 
Well, I'm a conservative. I work at a center-right think tank. So, you know, truth and labeling there. I'm a conservative. I think I'm also something else. I think we call myself an upwing conservative. I think you can be an upwing liberal. But it's simply the belief that we have it in our power to create the tools that will help us create a healthier world, a wealthier world, and solve big problems. That we can do that and that we have the wisdom and agency to do that. And we should do that versus, I think, what I would call downwing, which is people who say, you know what? Better safe than sorry. We shouldn't take risks. We'll probably only mess it up. And those tools will probably end up causing problems, whether it's AI or nuclear power. So I think that fundamental belief, this book isn't about creating utopia, but creating a better world. It seems obvious that people would believe that's possible. It is possible, but some people don't think it's possible. You make the point that if you go back, oh, 400 years, people thought progress was not possible. They assumed that life, in Thomas Hobbes' description, would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And yet, in those 400 years, we've seen astonishing improvements in health, astonishing improvements in agricultural productivity, remarkable changes in both transportation and communication. And in a way, we ought to look at the last couple hundred years as a validation of your concept. Why do you think it's so hard to get people to understand that In fact, we're on an upwing as a long-term culture, and things ought to be getting continuously better. There's a quote I use in the book, and to paraphrase it, how can it be that we here in modern society see nothing but progress behind us, yet we anticipate nothing but disaster ahead of us? You know, you could forgive people 400 years ago for thinking that they had no control over the future, that the future would be just like the present and the past. They didn't have the example of this tremendous increase in human prosperity that we've seen over the past quarter millennium. But we do have that example, and not just over the past you know, quarter millennium, but look at the United States, a country which went from a few million people huddled on the North Atlantic coast to a superpower. How did it happen that we stopped believing that? I think part of it is sort of hardwired into us that we have sort of a natural caution and that we feel losses more than gains. I think the environmental movement in the United States, which really turned into an anti-progress movement. I think we were always going to have an environmental movement. As countries get richer, they begin to think a lot more about the downsides to growth. That's fine. But I don't think we had to have that version. And I think that's played a big role. The kind of pessimism we've seen from the environmental movement, which turned into regulations and helping kill nuclear power, has, I think, infected the culture, including Hollywood, so that kids today, if they're concerned about climate change, they assume, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And we probably have to like give up the notion of an abundant future. We probably have to live worse than our parents. I mean, that's just one example. And you mentioned the culture. Part of this isn't just different policies, but a different culture that embraces tomorrow as a tomorrow of possibility, not utter doom. You talk about possibilities, and I agree with you entirely, but I'm fascinated because one of the people that you use as an example of a conservative futurist is Walt Disney, who was truly remarkable. I remember once there was a Reader's Digest piece about Disney right after he'd opened Disneyland, and he said... I must be pretty successful. I'm now $7 million in debt. <laughs> and that was back when $7 million was big money. 
But why do you pick Disney and what do you draw out of his career? Well, the first conservative futurist I mentioned is indeed Walt Disney, who certainly was an optimist. I mean, starting the you know, full-length cartoon films and amusement parks, his brother Roy advised him against doing both, saw them as going to be utter financial catastrophes. So he certainly was an optimist. He was a capitalist. He was also an optimist about not just his future, but humanity's future. He thought that the Tomorrowland theme land and Disneyland, that he had to get that right. That was almost the most important part of Disneyland. He had these plans to create a city of the future in Florida, which is now there called Epcot Center. But his vision was really like a real functioning city using the latest technology. It would be under a bubble. He was a conservative, a capitalist, voted for Barry Goldwater, certainly a futurist. But in the end, as my true model, I picked a different futurist, which was Herman Kahn, who was a nuclear war theorist in the 60s, but became by the 70s a real sunny purveyor of the power of techno-capitalism to make a better world. He would maybe be one of the last like upwing optimistic futurists because then the environmentalists took over the futurist profession and it became rather than these futurists giving us a vision of what was possible they began giving us visions, you know, really nightmarish visions of climate change and overpopulation and so forth. I happen to be involved. I taught in the Second Earth Day, and I was the coordinator of environmental studies at one point at West Georgia College. When you go back and you look at all of the great dire catastrophic warnings, not a single one of them was accurate. Not one. I mean, you go back and you read the famous 1975 book on, on the population time bomb in which the Stanford professor suggested that Britain would be starving by 2000. Totally false. But of course, he's tenured and revered. And on the left, nobody has actually thought about the fact that it didn't happen. You look at Al Gore's warnings about New York drowning as the glaciers melt. And while New York has problems, drowning isn't one of them. But it doesn't count. And again and again, this left-wing catastrophism turns out not to be true. No accountability. Well, it seems to have a deep almost religious overtone that belief matters more than fact and that sincerity matters more than reality. As long as your heart is in the right left-wing place, the fact that your head makes no sense doesn't matter. I mean, it's very strange. There's an imperviousness to reality that pervades. And I didn't really go into this book, you know, wanting to, you know, make it about how environmentalists are bad, because certainly we needed cleaner air and we needed to get lit out of gasoline. But there's been an unwillingness to update their beliefs. That's the catastrophe. Those predictions have failed catastrophically. There was just on Apple TV Plus a huge, big budget miniseries, you know, Meryl Streep, all the big stars about climate change and how it's going to get worse every decade. There was nothing. In all these episodes, with all the big budget, about the possibility, maybe what we really have is a clean energy problem, and maybe nuclear would be part of that solution. Nuclear was never even mentioned. For them, it's always 1973, or it's always 1979, when we had Three Mile Island, and where nobody died, but yet switching from nuclear to dirtier forms of energy in that region actually did hurt children and infants, and there's studies that back that up. There's no updating. There's no updating of those catastrophic beliefs. And Paul Ehrlich, who you just mentioned, he has a new book out. They did a big thing on him on 60 Minutes, Total Kid Glove Treatment. To go to a more fun part of this, after Disney, 
you pick up on a 1962 cartoon series, The Jetsons, which I remember fondly, and you suggest that it's the most influential futurist work of the 20th century. Why did you pick The Jetsons, and why do you think The Jetsons were so influential? It's a cartoon series that was only on for one season, yet that is sort of the go-to sort of media analogy for optimism. And it was a world of flying cars and robots doing all the drudgery and super high skyscrapers. And what was interesting is the people who made that television show did not think they were engaging in pure science fantasy. They thought like that legitimately a version of that was what we would have by now, that that's what scientists and technologists were telling them. And to this day, who took my flying car? It remains like a, a catchphrase. And that wasn't a show of fantasy. We should already have computers and AI doing more of our work. We should already really could have radically different transportation systems. And if you would do that show right now today, it would be a show about problems, about how technology makes life worse. The robot would probably end up killing the family or something. It would be a complete disaster. You probably couldn't do that today. And that's part of the problem is that if you cannot imagine a better future, then you're not going to, as a society, accept the disruption that is part of economic growth and technological progress. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega. The Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. 
here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. I used to say that we lived in a cycle where if Thomas Edison invented the electric light, it would have been reported in the news as the candle-making industry was threatened today. Everything has to be described in the negative. You do have this alternative fantasy where I became president. I once introduced the Northwest Ordinance for the moon because I took the principle that eventually there'll be enough Americans on the moon that we ought to have a governing mechanism. People thought I was nuts at the time. Luckily, Elon Musk thought it actually makes sense, and he's trying to develop rockets cheap enough that I suspect within a decade, we will be on the moon in significant numbers, and within another decade, we'll be on Mars in significant numbers. Talk a little bit about this whole notion of what it would have been like to have had a conservative future, not Newt Gingrich, but a conservative future reformist who reasserted the enormous opportunities the technology are creating. I think had we had that attitude 50 years ago, I think if we had an opportunity to once again embrace that attitude in the 1990s during periods of rapid economic growth, I think we would have looked around and said, what are the barriers preventing us from rapid progress? The kind of progress that at a minimum will make us richer as a society, both individually and as a country that can do more things. What are the barriers that prevent us from becoming a multiplanetary civilization, which not only will help make sure in case something bad happens to the earth, but there are tremendous resources out there that we can use. We don't also don't know what kinds of medicines you could create in zero gravity, for instance. We would look around and we would look for the barriers. We would see, are there environmental regulations that are making it super hard to build in the real world, whether it's a reactor or a high-speed rail or even a highway or even a bridge. We would look for those regulations. We would think, are we spending enough as a country on basic science research? Something across the spectrum, you know, people agree on. I would like to spend like we did during the space age at those kinds of levels, again, on the science research that drives technology, that drives economic growth. And so rather then only right now do we see the beginnings of genetic cures for cancer or Alzheimer's or AI that can help accelerate progress or be able to get to orbit very quickly and cheaply through SpaceX. We already have that, and we would be on the next stage of using those technologies to create a better world. One of the things that Elon Musk has done, a project which Congressman Bob Walker and I launched in the late 80s, when we actually passed an additional, I think, $400 million for NASA to try to develop a reusable rocket, which they did with Lockheed Martin, which failed totally. And it took another 20 years for Musk to come along and invent the reusable rocket. But he's actually lowering the cost, I think, by a factor of 10 in terms of being able to put things into space. And I think with the development of Starship, when it finally works, which I suspect will take another year or so, the fact that there's, I think, 36 rockets combined into one vehicle, that largest heavy lift vehicle in history, that will be reusable and will reduce the cost of heavy lift and of taking 
hundreds of people into space in a way that will revolutionize, just as, in a sense, the cell phone and the internet and the laptop have revolutionized information flow. I think Musk is on the edge of revolutionizing our ability to move physically. Presently, somebody will figure out that you can actually take that rocket, put it up into a low Earth orbit, come back down, and get from, say, New York to Tokyo in about 25 minutes. And that will be a different revolution. I think if there's one like sort of emerging technology that people, I think is kind of sneaking up on people, it's really the decline in space costs, thanks to SpaceX, partially through just a more efficient way of building rockets and then the reusability factor, right? Not only will make it far easier, cheaper to get big payloads into orbit and to the moon, but really holds a promise for very rapid intercontinental travel where, again, which is what people were talking about, you know, back to the Jetsons and the Jetsons, you could get across the world in 90 minutes. Like, finally, a half a century later, that might actually be possible. And I would assume that over the next decade, there will be multiple space platforms. Again, a real revolution. And at the exact time, back in 2012, when you were talking about, you know, the moon and making it a colony and people were raising an eyebrow, They shouldn't have been because the foundations for that kind of future were already in motion. And we're finally seeing the fruition now here in 2023. You know, it was interesting to me at the time. I was surprised the reaction of my competitors. I think what you would call downwing. They ridiculed the idea of space. And snarky. Right. Yeah. And I look back on it and it's part of that whole notion. But I want to go to this because I think it's interesting that you've this use of upwing and downwing. And you cite, I think downwing may be, in fact, your own introduction, but that upwing actually comes from an intellectual development a generation earlier in the 1970s by a futurist, F.M. Esfandiari, who is considered the godfather of modern transhumanism, which is a movement that tries to use science and technology to transcend biological limitations. I guess at one level, since I have artificial retinas that were put in, when I had cataracts, I'm sort of a modest example of that kind of behavior. How did you come up with upwing and downwing, which I think is actually very helpful and broader than ideology? I didn't invent those terms, but I've certainly sort of repurposed them. My goal here is not to reach a point where I have infinite life and I upload my brain to a computer. My goals are far more modest. My goals are living longer and healthier and being able to solve big problems and making humanity more resilient. But it became clear to me that that notion of solving problems and using our ingenuity to innovate and solve problems, that there were folks about the left and the right who saw that as a way to approach policy. And there are certainly people on the left and the right who don't view that, who only see the downsides, who don't like Silicon Valley, either because they're too weird or they're too rich and are just against them. And that is not how we got here. We got here by being a country that took risks, that embraced challenges. And we knew there might be some downside to it, but we kept moving forward and then kind of stopped doing it. And my fear is that if there's another nuclear accident, or even if it's really minor, because they have been minor for the most part, or if a starship rocket blows up and someone's hurt, the downwingers will come out and say, no more SpaceX, no more nuclear power. I hope that we've learned enough 
about the need for energy and the upside of going into space. That won't happen, but I always fear it might. You make a very important point, which has always been one of the amazing transitions in American life, which is that coming out of World War II, when we were about 50% of the world economy, because all of our competitors had been bombed, there was such an overhang of memory from the Great Depression that many of the most senior economists expected us to collapse back into a second depression. You have a quote from Paul Samuelson, who, by the way, was totally wrong about the Soviet economy and maintained that in his textbooks for the entire history of the Soviet Union. But he speculated at the time that we could be entering, quote, the greatest period of unemployment and industrial dislocation which any economy has ever faced. And that was their reaction to shifting from a government-controlled, planned wartime economy back to a free market. And of course, precisely the opposite happened with nobody on the left learning anything from it. But doesn't it surprise you looking back that in 1945, the great fear was a second depression. And yet what came out of it was a very long cycle of innovation, development, prosperity, people getting better, having better incomes, better houses, better kitchen utensils, you name it. When you look back, I mean, isn't that sort of an almost an odd cultural phenomenon? It is a phenomenon that we actually then saw repeated in the early 90s. That people think of the 90s, they think of, you know, the boom and it's the last great decade in you know American history and wages were rising, unemployment's low, brand new technologies, America at its peak. But in the early 90s, there was just the exact opposite because, you know, there was a recession in the early 90s and there was plenty of pessimism from Washington, Wall Street, you know, economists that maybe the Reagan revolution didn't really work. And we've had this recession and we need to accept a period of slow growth. And at the exact point where they had that feeling, technology started popping again and productivity started booming again. And here we are right now with, you know, there's still a lot of pessimism. You have folks on the left talk about late capitalism, that these are the final days of capitalism before we transfer to something else, probably socialism. And I think to me, science is again popping and technology is popping. And we could be at a period of acceleration of economic growth if we let it happen. If government does what it's supposed to do, which is not squash it and also does the kind of basic research. And if we let these amazing new companies do their thing to embrace caution at this point, when I think we really could be at a transformational moment, to me, the losses are incalculable. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. You make the point that had we simply accelerated our technological productivity opportunities, we would today be worth maybe five times what the current economy, in which case you could have handled Social Security, you could have handled Medicare, people would have been amazingly better off, and places like China would be irrelevant. Because the fact is, we would simply be so gigantic by comparison. I want to ask about this. One of the great advantages I had when I became speaker was we were going through one of these great upswings. We got elected in 94. We're the first House Republican majority in 40 years. We got reelected in 96. We were the first reelected House majority since 1928. But we were also riding the technological wave. So we were able to balance the federal budget for four straight years, because if you reformed welfare, controlled spending, reformed the bureaucracies, cut taxes and cut regulations and accelerated economic growth, you were getting a lot more money without a tax increase because people were earning a lot more. And you really had this wave effect. And then somehow it got dissipated again. It's always puzzled me by the time we get to 2008 or so, the mismanagement so bad that we create an artificial financial crisis that should never have occurred. I like going back to the 90s, not just because like, I personally remember that as a boom time, but I think it provides a lot of examples because for most people, it might be of a certain age, it might be the last time where they really think about the economy absolutely firing on all cylinders. You know what happened during the 90s was also a period of rising inequality, supposedly the great plague of modern society. But back then, I don't remember people talking about late capitalism or Occupy Wall Street or any of that stuff. Because even though we had more inequality in the 90s, all the boats were rising because growth was so rapid across income classes that no one really cared if that person over there, maybe their income was rising faster because that prosperity was palpable in their lives. So when people tell me, well, all this faster growth will just increase inequality. One, I tend to think that's not going to happen. But if everybody is doing better, that's what people will focus on. And that's the kind of economy we need, one of rapid growth. Because again, I think history strongly suggests that all boats will rise is not just an old metaphor, but is a real description of what happens during a period of acceleration and just deep prosperity. It's fascinating because Kennedy's phrase, you have a rising tide raising all boats. Since all of them are going up, you have dramatically less tension because everybody feels like they're doing better. And you make a point which I think is really underestimated 
It was one of our great contributions in the 90s, which is that regulation in many ways is even more destructive than tax increases. And you cite a Congressional Budget Office study that said that the regulatory explosion starting in the 70s was a major impediment to growth. And you suggest that if regulations had remained at the 1949 level, we would have an economy today four times bigger than the economy we actually have. So the cost of federal bureaucracy and the cost of regulation and the cost of compliance really does cripple the economy at least as much as high taxes. I think that's one of the things that's really underestimated by the American people and by the political class. It was underestimated back then. Maybe we could forgive people back then to now, half decade later, to still not realize it and only look at regulation for what it's supposed to do directly and not the way that it suppresses growth. And I think importantly, even makes innovations impossible. If you cannot build a reactor or SpaceX, those benefits are completely cut off. So I think as a conservative, I think you're right. I focus a lot on taxes over the years. We got the tax code at a better shape under President Trump. President Biden's trying to reverse some of that. But I would urge people on the left and right to think hard about how innovation is squashed by regulation. And I have a lot of great studies in the book. And again, the lost economic potential. I can't even imagine an economy five times as big, what that would be like. But as you mentioned, a lot of the current fiscal problems would be long in the past. So you talk about artificial intelligence as an example, and you basically don't believe that in the end, artificial intelligence will be a net job killer, because all of our history has been that technologies create new opportunities and so forth. Could you walk through just a little bit of that? Because I think your logic here is entirely correct. I think as a baseline, a baseline should be that a new technology, while it may be disruptive and that it will make some jobs obsolete and change even what people do in their existing jobs, the baseline should be that the net gain will be more jobs because that has been the history for 250 years. So to immediately jump to saying that this time is different is wrong. And you have to sort of break down what people mean by it's going to change jobs. It will automate some things we do. Other things we do, it will allow us to do them more efficiently and it will create new jobs. And it's always extremely difficult to predict what the new jobs will be. I'll tell you, one of my favorite examples is the ATM machine. So we don't have to go back 200 years. When they introduced the automatic teller machine, the prediction was bank tellers are all going to be out of jobs in six months. That didn't happen. There's more bank tellers today. Their jobs changed. They did more kind of hands-on work, helping promote different services of the bank or maybe kind of financial consultants. Their jobs changed, but we have more bank tellers today than we did when the ATM was introduced. So to sort of ignore those examples. And one of the things that makes me super excited is that AI can also not just boost productivity, boost scientific productivity to really help us create these next great breakthroughs to drive the economy and make our lives, hopefully, again, healthier and wealthier. And to squash that now in the early days, as some would do, that would be a catastrophic mistake. I had several relatives who actually worked for the telephone company as operators, and that the rise of automated telephones, you would have thought would have led to massive unemployment, 
but they all ended up getting better jobs doing other things. There wasn't some radical increase in unemployment because the efficiency, the effectiveness of the whole economy was transformed by the rise of automated telephone systems. It's the same story over and over. That is a great example. Another good one, when they first started using computer graphics in movies for special effects, the prediction was all the people who did special effects sort of the physical way, making small models, they would be all be out of a job. Well, guess what? We have more people in the special effects business now than we did when they started entering into movies in the late 1980s because people learned new skills, new jobs were created. And this is really important. It became cheaper to do special effects. So more movies use them. There's a demand component that if a service becomes cheaper, more people can take advantage of it. And with AI, Every business very soon will be able to make very fancy and sophisticated looking computer generated advertisements for their companies. At the high end, Nike will still do it themselves and use pros, but even very small businesses will be able to do it. The fact that we continue to not look at the potential upside is just astounding. We have to learn not to do that and have a little more confidence in what tomorrow can bring. Well, that's why I think your book is so important. I think you create both a historic framework for optimism and a way of thinking that could, in fact, liberate the American economy and move us to a whole new conversation about how to accelerate an improving and growing and larger American system rather than how to sit around worrying and expecting the decay. I really, I have to tell you, as somebody who wrote Window of Opportunity way back in 1984, arguing a similar belief that you could do dramatically better things than we were doing. I'm really glad that you've reopened the conversation. And I want to thank you for joining me. I think your new book is great. I want to encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of The Conservative Futurist. And I think we do need to believe in progress and taking chances to create a better future, not just for you and me, but for our children and grandchildren and the generations that come after. So, James, thank you for bringing us this positive, optimistic vision of the future. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to my guest, James Spethokoukos. You get a link to buy his new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.